0: Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy this sermon podcast. If you would turn with me to Mark chapter 8, A big text of scripture, we're going to kind of break it up in half uh, and and discuss each part of it as we are back in our series, Cross and Crown, the Gospel of Mark, and we're in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21, and the title of today's message is Avoiding the Drift. Avoiding the Drift. And you know what I mean by that? Sometimes our, our lives, our hearts drift from the joy of our salvation, the confidence that we have in Christ. The serenity and peace of walking in, uh, in that joy and walking in faith, we, we sort of drift from that and, and we lose that and we lose sight of that. Uh, you know, you go to church on Sunday and by Tuesday you feel like God has totally abandoned you. Or you go to youth camp in the summer and by September, by the time you go back to school, you've forgotten all those moments that you have with the Lord. Why does that happen? How does that happen? I think this text helps us see, and the disciples helps us see ourselves and how uh, that can happen. So let's read Mark chapter 8, verses 1-10. through 10. I'm reading out of the ESV. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me, with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him... <laughs> How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? Sound familiar? This is not the feeding of the 5,000. This is a different story. How many loaves do you have? They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got in the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we need help with the same thing the disciples needed help with. We need ears to hear and eyes to see. As you say over and over in your word, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So give us ears to hear and eyes to see. The beauty, the joy, and the power of Christ in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm actually going to start with a little bit of an aside because I think this story is one of the many great proofs that prove that Jesus walked the earth and lived a miraculous life and is the Messiah. The Gospel of Mark is actually the earliest gospel that was written of the four what's called synoptic gospels. In other words, it's the witness testimony of four different people sort of looking at the life of Christ. And so there's different details and nuance that we see in each gospel. This one was the earliest one written around 65 to 70 AD, about 30 to 40 years after this incident would have happened. And if this thing didn't happen, as many in the modern world would claim there literally would have been thousands and thousands of people who not only experienced this miracle of the feeding of the 4,000, but the miracle of the 5,000. There would have been thousands of witnesses to say, what? That didn't happen. As this gospel was circulating in in the ancient world and in the early church, they would have known that this thing was fabricated and made up. But literally, because Jesus did these miracles in front of thousands and thousands of people, there were thousands of witnesses to testify that this thing happened or deny that this thing happened. And there is no historical record whatsoever that anyone denied that Jesus did this miracle. And I think that's pretty cool proof for who Jesus is and what Jesus did when he walked the earth. Now, back to sort of our topic here, avoiding the drift. I have in bold here in this text I just read, verse 4, his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? It's like, wait a second. Didn't they already go through this, and didn't they already ask the same question to Jesus in a very similar situation in the Gospel of Mark? Didn't Jesus already do a miracle like this? Why are they asking that question when they know what He's capable of doing? So let's look at it back in Mark chapter 6 and verse 37. But he answered them it's a different story, different, different part of Israel. But he answered them, "You give them something to eat." And they said, "Shall we go out and buy 200 denarii worth of bread?" And give it to them to eat? Same question. How are you going to feed these people? They'd already seen the feeding of the 5,000. What is going on in their memory that they're literally in the same exact place with the same exact king that is full of power to feed these people? And they have already, seemingly, two chapters forgotten. The reason is because they're like us and we're like them. We drift and we leak. And so we constantly need this re-posturing of ourselves toward the gospel, re-posturing of ourselves toward truth and toward the word. That's why the book of Ephesians says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you look at that verse, it literally means, be ye being continuously filled. So why would, if we're filled, why do we need to keep being filled? Because we leak and we drift from the fullness Of our experience with the Lord, with His Word, and with His Spirit. God moves in our lives, and then we forget, or our hearts grow anxious or cold, just like the disciples. So we drift from confidence. We drift from assurance of our salvation. We drift from peace. We drift from joy. We drift from faith. We drift from love. I don't know about you, but sometimes I need to keep my forgiveness updated. There's people I've forgiven. I had that moment with God. I put a stake in the ground. Said, I forgave that person. And a wave of bitterness comes back. And I'm like, man, dang. I got I to update my forgiveness. Right? I, I drift. My heart wants to drift away from that. We drift from passion and zeal. We drift from belief and we struggle with unbelief. There's a, there's a hymn, famous hymn, that kind of sings about this. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, here's my heart, oh take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. The hymn writer understood. And I think if you look at the life of this hymn writer, which I'm not going to, different story, you can look that up, you see a struggle with this, this writer's life. He understood he was prone to wander, prone to drift, prone to leak. So what I want to talk about today from this text are how does it happen when does it happen? Like, where's the moment of departure from the fullness that we experience sometimes in the Lord? And then number three, how do we fight it? So how, when, and then how do we fight it? So how does it happen? Well, five, just quick, uh, quick things to I think that explain that. Quick symptoms: number one, sin; number two, laziness; number three, busyness; number four, lack of fellowship; and number five condemnation. All of these things can, caught, can push us away from, from the fullness of our relationship with the Lord, from the joy of our salvation, from confidence, assurance, peace, joy, faith, love, passion, belief. Condemnation is a big one. Condemnation is a big one. In his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, I recommend reading that by C.J. Mahaney. Great book. He talks about what it means to live a truth-driven life based on the finished work of Christ. In other words, I'm justified by faith in the Lord Jesus. You don't do justification. That's, done. That's a done thing. So literally, I stand on the foundation of my justification in Christ that was done by Christ, not me, and therefore I can move forward in the assurance that I am complete in Him, and I could do good works for a thousand years and never be more righteous in the eyes of God than I am right now. My good works won't make me more righteous, my sin won't make me less righteous in the eyes of God if I'm in Christ. But he says if we drift from that, we fall into three categories. I don't have a slide for this, just to want to mention this to you though. We drift into three categories, subjectivism, legalism, or condemnation. Subjectivism is we fall prey to the whims of our emotions. If our lives aren't based on truth and the cross and what Jesus did, then we are at the whim of our emotions. So we're up we're down. I feel good. I don't feel good. I'm joyful. I feel lonely. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. And we just sort of ebb and flow with that. And honestly, like growing up for me, that was kind of the way I, I lived my Christian life for a long time. And it's, it's a trap where you sort of feel your way through your relationship with God. A truth-driven life is a mature life because it's based on faith in promises, not based on faith in my performance or my feelings. And so that's what subjectivism is. Legalism is basing your entire relationship with God on your performance according to the rules or the law. So again, you're in, you're out. Um, And then if you start understanding the implications of the law inside, which the New Testament actually elevates the holiness of God's law, in that it says it actually ain't just your outward behavior, it's your inward too. So you can like obey the law not to commit adultery outside But Jesus said, but I say to you, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. So anybody who claims the New Testament doesn't have a high view of God's law, doesn't understand what Jesus was doing. He was saying the law actually goes to the inside as well. And so when you start understanding the implications of that, legalism and the weight of the law can just come right upon you and weigh you down and burden you down with condemnation. And that's the third one, of course, is condemnation. And so it's either that performance-driven life where I feel like I've gotten over the bar and I'm I'm, I'm currently doing okay with God, or we fail and don't keep the rules and we go under the bar and we live in condemnation. And so all these things cause a drift. All these things cause this leakage where Paul has to say to the early church and to this church, be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit, because we drift away. We forget who we are. There's this uh, famous interaction that Frodo had with Smeagol, who would become Gollum in the Lord of the Rings series. And he, Frodo uses Gollum's original name, Smeagol. And Gollum answers, Don't ask Smeagol, poor, poor Smeagol. He went away long ago. They took his precious. And he's lost now. He's forgotten even who he is. And that can happen to us. We forget who we are. And that's why the book of James says, whoever looks in the word of God and doesn't obey is like somebody who looks in a mirror and forgets what they look like. So what is that telling us? It's saying that the, the scriptures are actually a mirror that you're supposed to look in and this, the, the mirror tells you who you are. And you go, oh, that's who I am. I'm loved. I'm, I'm secure in Christ. I'm, I'm justified by faith in Christ. I'm a child of God. I, I have an inheritance in Christ. And, Paul, and James says, if, if we walk away and, and begin to live in sin and begin to disobey, you literally forgot who you are. You forgot what you look like. Again, like Smeagol, to Gollum. He forgot who he was. He even forgot his name at one point. And we see this happening throughout Scripture with a lot of biblical characters. We see it in Solomon, we see it in King David, and we see it in Israel. Solomon, King Solomon, seems to wander in a wilderness seeking meaning and pleasure in this world, at one point having 1,000 wives and concubines. I mean, just think about the, the practice of that. You want to spend time with your woman or, you know, have a, I mean, that, that's what, three years, Solomon could live three years with a different woman every night. And it takes Solomon years to finally see the meaning of life, assuming that he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. It takes him years to finally see the meaning of life, and he finds it in God where he began that this is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. In other words, it's about God. So we see that in Psalm. We see that drifting. King David famously sinned with Bathsheba, and it was almost a year before he repented, so he hid his sin for a year, and it took a pretty dramatic confrontation with one of the prophets of Israel, Nathan, to jar him out of his apathy and indifference. Listen to how... David describes the misery he was experiencing during that year in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5, when he's recalling the state of his heart when he was hiding his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, her husband. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped, as in the heat of summer, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. This was, this was misery. You know, sin is buy now, pay later. And we see that in David. Sin takes you places you don't want to go and it makes you somebody you don't want to be. And David ended up in this place where his heart had drifted from the Lord, but, but God restored him and eventually David is restored to that title, a man after God's own heart. But we see again that drift and that, that, that moving away from that that place he had with the Lord. We see it in in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Judges 2.10 says, And all that generation were also gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. So we see this happening as a society. We see it happening in families. Just this drifting away. So God warns us about this instinct and encourages us to rise above it. Here's some New Testament uh, admonitions against that drifting and that leaking. Hebrews 2.1, he says, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Hebrews 10.39, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. John Knox early Reformation, maybe even pre-Reformation, said this. I love this. I will keep the ground that God has given me, and perhaps in His grace He will ignite me again. But ignite me or not, in His grace, in His power, I will hold the ground. So here's a man who's had this experience with the Lord. He's had this revelation of God in His Word, this interaction with God in His relationship with the Lord and with the Holy Spirit. And he says, I will keep the ground that God has given me. He's recognizing, like the writer of um, Come Thou found of Every Blessing, this tendency in him to, to wander and drift. So when does it happen? What, what, where's the moment of departure? So I've already said that the disciples saw this miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 again. I mean, it was the feeding of the 5,000 the first time. And it seems, as we read this text I'm about to read, that they've forgotten a- again. So let's read Mark eight eleven through 21, the rest of our text today. Then the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. Verse 14. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you have? They said, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? What do we see here in this text? Jesus is talking about spiritual things. He's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees, the legalism of the Pharisees. And he's really teaching what Paul reiterated and elaborated on in the book of Galatians, that you can't depart from grace a little bit and not miss the whole thing. Like Martin Luther said, there's no middle ground between works righteousness and Christ's righteousness. You're either on one island or the other. Because once you depart, once you say it's, it's about my performance a little bit, it's about my work a little bit, then you neglect the work of the cross. And you're essentially saying the cross is wasn't enough for me, which was the great plight of the Pharisees. They didn't see the need of the cross. They looked at the cross of Christ as stupid because they thought that through their own works and their own righteousness, they could attain the acceptance of God. And of course, they couldn't. So Jesus says, Look out for their leaven. Look out for that legalism. Look out for that works righteousness. Deadly. Now, so that's what Jesus is talking about. But for the third time, the disciples start thinking about. Actual, physical bread. And once again, they don't get it. They're like, how are we going to eat out here? Where are we going to find bread? It's like, guys, I just don't... It's unfathomable that they're in this spot again. Verse 17 tells us why. It says their hearts were hardened. We talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago. Their hearts were hardened. That's the Greek word, poro. And it means to petrify meaning a hardening of the heart this implies a hardening think about the idea of petrifying a hardening over time by continuing to drift and forget by drifting into unbelief see nobody wakes up with a hard heart i mean talk to anybody in any prison cell and ask them when you were five years old were you like excited about going to prison one day five-year-old boys five-year-old girls don't wake up and go man 20 years, I love be in prison. You know, commit some felonies. How does that happen? There's this departure, there's this drift, there's this petrifying of the heart that happens over time. It's not one bad day, but it is a series of bad days. Last year, uh, Josh and I are part of a network called CPCN, Churches Planting Churches Network, and we were invited to come. Um, to a pastor's seminar, and I, I honestly, I'm just straight up, I was not excited about going to this thing, because this pastor uh, was known to have a, a moral failure, and um, they were bringing in this guy who, you know, in my view, had lost his reputation uh, because of some moral failure from a megachurch that he led in Florida, so I kind of went, like, begrudgingly. But I was actually pleasantly surprised because I found a brother who was disclosing not only the failure of his life, but what led up to that failure as a warning to other pastors and talking about the necessity of the grace of God and the need to remain in a place where that you don't give in the temptation to be more concerned about the work of the Lord than the Lord of the work. And that's what happened to him. He lost sight of his relationship with god he became overfocused on his work overfocused on his reputation and it eventually cost him his ministry and almost his family what happened to him he just got off a little it's like that old plumb line thing you know like if you make a plumb line and you get off one degree from a plumb line and you take that out miles you go out miles away how far are you away from the plumb line of a much farther distance than you were when you started. So it's just one degree off over time. You end up with this gap, this, this distance. So again, it's not one bad day, but a series of bad days. So how do we live a victorious life then? You live a victorious life by living a victorious day, by living a victorious moment. And everything we do here at Redeeming Hope is with the intention to encourage you to live victorious days. Not just victorious Sundays, but victorious days. That's why we have a Bible reading plan. That's not uh, legalism to try to get you to somehow check some spiritual box as much as it is. Position your life in front of God. Position your life in front of his word. Position your life in front of the gospel. Listen to it. Look at it. Stare at it. Consider it. Let it get down in your heart so that we can learn together to live through these These uh, practices that we have and these resources that we have of groups and the Bible reading plan to, to live victorious days together and encourage one another in these things. So, when did it happen? See in verse 18, he says, Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? It happened the moment they stopped listening that was the one they stopped listening to their teacher they stopped listening to the gospel their spiritual sight and hearing was fading and you know Jesus didn't say you have a hard heart he's saying are your hearts hardened have you, have you have they petrified that quickly have you departed to the point where it's in this state yet but So he didn't actually say that their hearts were hard, but he was saying, you're moving toward it. And it happened when you stopped listening spiritually and seeing spiritually. Verse 18 says, do you not remember? So part of the departure was, they were failing to remember the acts and the character of God. We just forget God's faithfulness. You forget how God worked last time in your finances. How God worked last time in the crisis. And you freak out like this is the first crisis that's ever been presented to God or ever has come into your life. And it's just like, let's stop and try to put our minds back at the feeding of the 5,000. Let's stop and try to put our minds back at that moment we saw Jesus feed the 4,000. And I don't know what your feeding of the 5,000 or feeding of the 4,000 is, how God came through in your life, how God worked in your heart. But we need to put ourselves back there and go, wait, 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 God God is good. God is in control. God is faithful. Or maybe even put ourselves back in a Bible story like the story of Joseph where we see how God was faithful in his life over time and we say, what is true in Joseph's life is true in mine and I'm going to let Joseph's life stand in for me because Romans says what was written in old times was written for our instruction that we might have hope. So we have to remember the character and the acts of God in our lives or in church history or in the Bible. Heidi and I stayed at a friend's house some time back and they warned us that uh, we were sleeping on an air mattress, and they warned us that it was leaky. And, and you know, at, so we, we blew it up at, at night, and Heidi's on one side of the bed, and I'm on the other, you know. But then as the night rolled on, so did we. Just sort of, and we wake up in the morning, not that i minded, y'all, but like, we wake up in the morning, and I'm just like right there, Heidi's right here, and I'm right here like, hey, what's up? Hey, Derek, what's going on? I guess there's no side of the bed anymore because the thing just caved in. And I, I think that's, that's kind of a picture of what happens when we, we leak and we forget. It's like things start to cave in and, and, and we, just, we just lose something. So I, I think what this teaches us, especially when we take this story in light of the teaching of the apostles, is that staying under grace and staying victorious in Christ doesn't happen automatically, and I'm not talking about your salvation. I believe we're secure in our salvation in Christ because he's the captain of our soul. He purchased us. He holds on to us, but that doesn't mean our experience is always consistent, and our enjoyment of our salvation is always consistent, and our intimacy with the Father is always consistent. There can be a struggle there, and I don't think it happens automatically, and that's why we see things in scripture like Ephesians 6, where Paul says, take up the armor of God, put on the armor of God. And then he goes on to talk about all these pieces of armor, which honestly are nothing more than synonyms for the gospel of grace. The helmet of salvation. Remember your salvation. The breastplate of righteousness. Remember the righteousness you have in Christ. The belt of truth. Remember the truth of the gospel. Your feet shod with the gospel of peace. It's just all gospel synonyms. That's all it is. Remember what Jesus did for you. Remember the forgiveness and the grace and the love that you have in him. Remember who you are in Christ, that you are a child of God. And as many as have received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. So he says, take it up, put it on. Romans 13, 14, same thing. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So that seems to imply that when we get up, there needs to be this putting on of Christ where we can begin to walk in this thing and not drift, leak, or forget. Look at this quote by Milton Vincent in his book, A Gospel Primer, which is just a resource to help believers kind of practice living gospel-centered lives. He said that God would tell me to take up and put on this gospel armor alerts me to the fact that I do not automatically come into each day protected by the gospel. In fact, these commands imply that I am vulnerable to defeat and injury unless I seize upon the gospel and arm myself with it from head to toe. You know, you you read passages about spiritual warfare like Ephesians 6 where you're told to put on all this armor, and and I, I walk away like, dang, I think somebody's about to shoot at me. Somebody's about to shoot at you. So put on your armor. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the darts of the enemy are coming that will tempt you to drift into a lack of confidence, to drift into sin, to drift into condemnation, to drift away from fellowship. So, how, when, and now how do we fight it? How do do we battle this thing? Here's some thoughts on some ways that we avoid the drift. Number one, Stay in the gospel, and that can be, of course, reading the scriptures and and letting them speak to you, letting God speak to you through uh, the scriptures. Uh, it can also be, uh, for me, it can be just listening to podcasts or reading gospel-centered books. So like I, I listen to uh, Sinclair Ferguson all the time. He's got um, he's got these little five to seven minute podcasts, and it just He's this old Scotsman. It sounds like I'm listening to Grandpa on the back porch talk about Jesus. And I'm just, I just pop it on in my uh, my headphones, you know, and I'm going to Planet Fitness or about my day and just let the gospel through his ministry encourage me. And there's other resources like that. But it's just a matter of preaching the gospel to yourselves because I think one of the biggest problems we have is that we spend more time listening to ourselves than preaching to ourselves. You know what I mean? You wake up in the morning and you just start listening to the voices that create anxiety, things that need to be done, things that you're, this sense of impending doom about this thing that's ahead of you and I don't know what's gonna happen. And, and, or maybe even just the, the flaws and weaknesses and faults that you have. And it's just like, weight, wait, weight of the law, weight of anxiety, weight of the world, weight of the cares of this world. And it's just like if we spend all our times listening to ourselves, instead of preaching to ourselves, we could fall prey to this idea of, of drifting So I think just developing the practice of preaching the gospel to ourselves well and sometimes shaking off that stuff and saying, I need to hear from the Lord. I need to be encouraged in the gospel and positioning ourselves to do that. One more quote from the Gospel Primer. The gospel is so foolish, according to my natural wisdom, so scandalous, according to my conscience, and so incredible, according to my timid heart, that it is a daily battle to believe the full scope of of it as I should. There is simply no other way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my heart, and the lies of the world and the devil than to overwhelm such things with daily rehearsings of the gospel. And now look at this verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. All he's talking about there is just staring at... The gospel of the apostles, staring at the word of God, staring at the story of Christ. And as we stare at it, somehow it changes us as we stare at it. It's the only thing in the world that's like that. You stare at it and you become like it. The great missionary Hudson Taylor had the line of a hymn every day that he positioned at his desk. They saw it, they found it after his death, that he could see it every day. And it was a simple prayer. Jesus, be to me today a bright, living reality. Man, that's a prayer we need to just keep, keep praying. Jesus, be real to me today. Be real in my life. Don't let me drift from a sense of your presence. Like Moses said, If our Bible reading plan this last week was Exodus, if you're following along. And he says, Lord, if you don't go with us, I don't want to go. And of course, Jesus says, I am with you. So this is, a, this is a prayer that God wants to answer. Jesus, be to me a bright living reality. Okay, number two, how do we fight it? Practice abiding in Christ. And of course, some of that is preaching the gospel to yourself. And I guess I just want to say here, try to ask the Lord for wisdom to determine like what stirs your spiritual affections and do that a lot. What stirs up your love for God? What stirs up a sense of the presence of God in your life? And, and stir that up. And then don't just see God's presence as like that 15, 20 minute, 30 minute time I have with God in the morning. But learn to literally walk in the presence of God. And A.W. Tozer talks about this, where he talks about developing a habit where you turn the gaze of your soul toward God constantly and live in his presence. And it doesn't mean you're even asking for anything. It just means that you're you're living with a sense of God's withness. So no matter what comes into your life, you just say, God, I know you're with me and I'm turning my gaze toward you. I know you're with me. It's like um, when I'm at a Christmas party with my wife Heidi, talking to somebody else and I I have her hand. And as I'm talking to somebody else, I I think I just did this uh, a couple days ago. I'll just take her hand and go like this, double pump. You know. Talking to this person, but I double pump my wife's hand. What am I saying? I'm talking to you, to, I'm talking to this person, but I'm thinking about you. So I want to encourage you to grab God's hand and throughout your day, as you're about your work, just double pump God's hand. Changing that diaper, double pump. Doing the dishes, double pump, God I know you're with me right now, and you're not even asking, it's not like you're asking for anything, it's not like that, it doesn't count if you're, unless you have this laundry list of prayer requests, it literally is just living in the presence of God by acknowledging him, acknowledging his promise, and acknowledging his presence. Mother Teresa was famously asked, do you talk to God? I heard you talk to God, by a reporter, she says, I do, and the reporter said, well, what does he say to you? And Mother Teresa said, nothing, Oh, well, what do you say to him? She smiled. Nothing. You get it? He's just holding his hand and walking throughout life. That is abiding in Christ. Number three, remind yourself of the goodness of God in your life. So, how can you do that? How can you remind yourself? I mean, of course, reading the Word, I think, can do that. but there's this, uh, there's this line in another hymn from Come Thou Fount. Here I raise my Ebenezer. I remember hearing that when I was a kid, like, Ebenezer Scrooge? Like What is going on in this verse? Well, Ebenezer was the name of an altar that Abraham built in the Old Testament. And after God had done a work in his life, he built an altar at a certain spot. And the word Ebenezer literally means God has been faithful so far. And the, the point was, he built the altar so that future generations could come along that same path he was on, see it, and go, wow, God was faithful to a previous generation, and he'll be faithful to me. So how can you build an Ebenezer? Otherwise, we become like Dory in Finding Nemo. Immediately forget, you know, just keep swimming, I guess. For me, I have a prayer journal, I've, and I've done this for years. I don't journal every day, but if significant things happen in my life or you know, in our family, I'll write it down, and it's so encouraging to go back to those journals and see my Ebenezer, see what the Lord did in our lives, and and sort of recite that with the family. Um, Another thing that I do is just, I go back to old music that God ministered to me during times in my life. For me, that's Keith Green. When I was nine-year-old, I got a floppy record in Sunday school class, went and put it on my little Fisher Price record player, and it was, unless the Lord builds a house. And I was like, oh, this guy's awesome. Because I thought all Christian music was, I didn't know Christian music existed, like contemporary Christian music. And then I listened to Keith Green all through my, you know, my young years in Christ, my teenage years, and his songs had a tremendous impact on my life. And so like, I have these times when I'll go back to that music, or if this means anything to you, Steve Camp, or even, petra you know just go back and listen to that old stuff and it's just like oh that was a soundtrack of my life when god was doing this and it brings me right back to that moment so how can you remind yourself of god's goodness in your life maybe ask the lord for wisdom for how to do that and finally pray just be a person of prayer prayer is a a sign of daily dependence upon god's grace and that's really what the goal is it's not to check the prayer box as much it is to posture yourself to be dependent upon the lord and his spirit When Jesus is giving a report card to the churches in Revelation, he tells the church in Ephesus this, and I don't know if I have a slide for this or not. He says, But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, the height from which you fall and repent, and do the first works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So he's saying, The reason you drifted is because you've left your first love. And he says the solution, the way to fight it, the way to get back to it is do the things you did at first. Well, what the heck is that? Well, let's let's take this in a natural picture. When you were born as a baby, what was the very first thing, the first work that you did when you entered this world physically? You flopped around, right? And the nurse or the doctor took you and put you on your mama, and then maybe you breastfed, maybe you had a bottle, but you were completely dependent. 100%, you could do nothing unless your mother or your father provided it. You were at the mercy of the hands of others. And Paul says, or Jesus says, do the first works. What's the first work? Well, it's a paradox. The first work is nothing. It's faith. The first work is dependence. The first work spiritually was you depended completely on the grace of God and the love of God to define you, and to strengthen you. And that's what he's saying. Go back to that spot where you're resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're resting in his love, and you're resting in his presence, and in his grace, and in his power. And prayer, I think, is a sign. It can be a sign, an act of dependence. And by the way, it doesn't have to be long. If you ever got stuck in legalism where you thought prayer had to be this long thing, can I just set you free from that? You don't have to pray an hour every day. Matter of fact, Jesus said in in Matthew chapter six, when you pray, don't be like the Pharisees who think they'll be heard with long-winded prayers because of their many words. Then he gives us the Lord's prayer. And I think one of the summaries, one of the conclusions I make from that is, guys, just keep it simple. Doesn't have to be be a lot. And then we learn to live in his presence and pray without ceasing, which just means you're holding his hand as you walk throughout your day with the Lord. So I'm gonna finish by reading a prayer that I wrote that for years I prayed. And uh, it kind of summarizes a lot of these things. And I'm going to finish this message by praying that prayer with you today as we talk about avoiding the drift. And it's simple. Father, be glorified in my life today, whether I see sun or rain. Please give me the strength to serve others and help me to worship you in all things, preach you in all things, and trust you in all things. Let sin not be my master but help me live in the power of your grace given to me through the cross. Amen. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.